Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, there seems to be one belief that unites people from all walks of life, all ages, right around the world, and it's this. We are in moral decline. Things were better in some golden era of the past. We're prone to believing politicians who tell us things are broken and they can fix it. But what of the whole notion of moral decline is actually false, a trick our minds play on us? We find out why that could be true. It's National Aboriginal People's Day today, and award-winning author Michelle Good of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan and award-winning Cree Iroquois French multimedia journalist Brandy Morin joins us from Alberta to talk about their work and the importance of sharing stories. 30 years after it started in Vancouver, TNT Supermarkets now has 30 locations in four provinces, including BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. CEO Tina Lee joins me to talk about how her mother started the company back in 1993, the secret to its success, and why they have plans to expand to the U.S. But first, former Vice Chief of Defence Staff Mark Norman joins me to talk about the massive search and rescue effort racing against the clock to find a missing submersible off the coast of Newfoundland and rescue the five people on board. We're going to start tonight again where we have the past few nights uh, in the North Atlantic. It's been 72 hours more now since contact was lost with Ocean Gate's Titan submersible during its dive to the bottom of the North Atlantic to see the wreck of the Titanic some 3,800 meters down, 12,500 feet. And it's been more than 24 hours now or thereabouts since noises were heard underwater and there is still no sign of the submersible. The U.S. Coast Guard gave an update this afternoon providing not much in the way of new information uh, about the vessel or its five missing crew members. Captain Jamie Fredericks said remotely operated vehicles have been dispatched to the area where the uh, Canadian Aurora had observed noises through a dropped buoy, buoy and said those searches had yielded so far a negative result. Uh, They are bringing in new ships and underwater vessels to search for the submersible in that area. Again, it hasn't been heard from since Sunday. The passengers are estimated to have as little as a day's worth of oxygen left, perhaps less. Uh, At a press conference this afternoon, uh, Jamie Frederick, the U.S. Coast Guard captain, says search crews still have hope. This is a search and rescue mission, 100%. We are smack dab in the middle of search and rescue, and uh, and uh, we'll continue to put every available asset that we have in an effort to to find the Titan and the crew members. Yeah, that includes French ROV operators apparently en route to the scene from St. John's uh, and a number of assets searching the surface. The number is expected to double from 5 to 10 in the next uh, little while or so by tomorrow. A Canadian, again, and a Canadian Aurora military surveillance er- aircraft detected some underwater noises in the search area yesterday, apparently. Uh, Carl Hartsfield is with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute assisting in the search. He says the noises could come from a number of different sources. I can tell you from my experience with acoustics that there are sounds uh, by biologics that sound man-made to the untrained ear, but I can assure you that the people listening uh, to these tapes uh, are trained. Uh, There are a lot of vessels in the area, and they each make noise. Right. Uh, a bit like a needle in a haystack, obviously. Last night, we spoke with BC businessman Ron Toyka, who'd been on two dives aboard the Titan in 2021 and 2022. He described the cramped conditions inside the 6x7 by 2.8 by 2.5 meter long vessel. And that tube is bolted shut from the outside. So even um, if they were to have surfaced, they wouldn't be able necessarily to get out. Here's what he had to say. But the only way you can get out of that thing is by being unbolted they have to literally take the ship take the nose off of it 
There's no right, opening. There's no doors. It's it's uh, it is a sealed unit, and um, it's sealed until somebody from the outside opens it. Uh, Ron Toyka, who is on uh, the Titan both in 2021 and 2022. In fact, two of the people on board when he was there were two of the ones missing still tonight. Ocean Gate CEO Stockton Rush and uh, French underwater researcher and Titanic expert uh, P.H. Nargole, along with a British billionaire and a Pakistani British businessman and his 19-year-old son. Well, with more on this, someone who knows just the scale and scope of what's happening out there tonight is retired Royal, Royal Canadian Navy Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who is Canada's former Vice Chief of defense staff as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you, Ben, for having me on your show. I, I was, you know, I, I can only imagine, given your experience, when this began, you must have immediately looked at the logistics of this and thought, you know, it's hard to overstate how complicated a search and rescue effort this actually is. Yeah, well, precisely. And you used the uh, words needle in a haystack earlier, and it uh, it sounds uh, almost dismissive, and it's not intended to be that. But I mean, this is a this is a Herculean task. Um, in previous interviews, I've characterized the search area as roughly five times uh, the surface area of the city of Toronto. Uh, oh. We're looking for we're looking for something that's roughly the size uh, of a large van, and um, and that's just on the surface. And as you were describing. In your uh, your lead up there, um, we're also dealing with something that could be uh, anywhere between the surface and roughly four kilometers uh, to to the bottom. So this is a huge problem, and um, notwithstanding the the significant resources that are being brought to bear, um, the the reality is that unless there's some way to actually detect this submersible, uh, like the noise that we heard of uh, last evening. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to find it, unfortunately. Yeah, I realize just how far out there it is, too. I mean, just just getting all those resources in a in a, in a position to be able to to help has been been a challenge. We've seen, although it feels like they've been moving fast by 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 these uh, by by these standards. Well, yeah, absolutely, and and they are literally moving heaven and earth, as the saying goes. Um, and uh, in these types of emergencies, there are a number of capabilities which exist uh, both uh, in North America and, el- and elsewhere, as we're seeing the French and others uh, bring these resources to bear. Um, and they can react fairly quickly. Um, but um, as you pointed out, uh, you know, at, at the start, we're, we're now 72 hours into what is a, uh, a very tight timeline. Um, the oxygen levels are estimated. Um, it's not a definitive timeline, but, um, you know, we've probably got about uh, 24 hours plus, uh, I would say, uh, uh, in, a, in a good scenario to, uh, to try and find this vessel. Yeah, and just the coordination and everything involved, I mean, watching it from the outside, it, it looks like this is that aspect has gone pretty smooth i know there's been you know some a bit of criticism coming out about about the time it took to get out there but we don't know what the problem there was exactly but uh even if they were to locate it though if it's underwater if it's down how do you get it up well yeah so um let's uh let's unpack that exactly so um this the vessel weighs approximately 10 tons uh, as i understand it so you need to have something that is capable of lifting that weight um, at potentially uh, extreme depth. 
And so um, that presents a challenge in and of itself. Um, not only does the cable have to be uh, extremely long, uh, the vessel carrying that has to be significantly large enough to carry the weight of the cable. Um, you can imagine if you took a heavy cable and, and ran it out four kilometers, how much that would weigh itself. Plus, then you've got to actually connect it to the vessel. And so that would require um, some very sophisticated uh, robotic uh, capabilities, which are either on site or on their way to the site, as I understand. So um, they're, putting, they're putting all the right pieces together. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that uh, is, it's not that the specifics of this are practiced, but um, these, are, these are organizations, Coast Guards, Navies, uh, and the private sector who um, will work together and have worked together and are all focused on one, on one common goal, which is, which is finding these, these, uh, these poor people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone here has their fingers crossed that somehow, somehow this is going to work out. But when one thinks about when these kinds of resources are normally deployed, when one thinks of other uh, tragedies such as plane crashes and so on or, or, or ships going down, there tends to be some sort of idea where it is. There's a debris field. There's something. And in this case, you're right, searching for a van in something six times, five, six times the size of the area of, of, of Toronto is, is in, in, in difficult. In, you know, that part of the ocean, I gather, is not a particularly nice part. It's pretty rough. I mean, this is a serious challenge. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And, and th- this, this vessel is, it's, um, you know, as I understand it, it has some rudimentary um, signaling capabilities on board. But uh, those don't appear to have been activated for whatever reason. And so uh, it's extremely difficult because, uh, in essence, um, the, the submersible is, is n- not trying to be found. Uh, so that makes it e- even more difficult, a- a- as you've described. Look, and, you know, as, as the Coast Guard spokesperson said, um, you know, it is still a search and rescue. This is entirely consistent with the protocols. Um, and, and this is... This is consistent with international expectations and treaties and everything else that um, when it comes to the safety of life at sea, uh, we pull out all the stops. We do everything we possibly can until somebody um, either decides that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's no longer a rescue and then it could transition into what would be called a recovery or they have uh, some indication of, of uh, an outcome that uh, also uh, leads it to a recovery. We're still all hoping for a rescue, um, but uh, you know we'll we'll have a we'll have that transition will take place sometime in the next couple of days, one way or another. Retired Vice Admiral Mike Norman, uh, Mark Norman, sorry, Canada's former Vice Chief of Defence Staff is with us this half hour. Uh, th- there's been so much made about, I mean, this is invariably what happens after 72 hours as the search continues. There's been a lot made about the amount of resources being uh, thrown in to try and finding these five uh, people in this capsule. And then we have this inc- this horrific uh, drowning of migrants in the Mediterranean. There are rules at sea, though, and you were talking about them earlier, that we are obligated, we have, we have these commitments to try to save lives at sea, regardless of where they are, and people aren't treated differently. Is that, that seems to be how it works in, in practice, at least. Yeah, exactly, Ben. And, and uh, you know, those are, this, this is obviously an example, and I can understand why people would, 
would wonder. Um, and equally, um, you know, these types of things, maybe not specific like this scenario, but they happen uh, almost every day uh, all around the world. And there are international expectations. And, and they're based, in essence, on the notion of, uh, you know, Good Samaritan doing the right thing and looking after people. And, and, and I would uh, offer two observations to your listeners. First of all, uh, if if somebody really is interested in this, uh, Michael Byers, uh, a renowned uh, uh, political commentator, um, wrote a piece earlier today in the Global Mail, and it's an excellent overview of uh, why these things are the way they are and why uh, Canada and, and our, our friends and allies are doing absolutely the right thing in these circumstances, notwithstanding how people may feel about the specific situation um, that led to this this uh, this terrible um, uh, circumstance in the Atlantic. And then the other thing I would offer is perhaps um, that uh, many listeners can relate to. This is this is very similar to the notion of providing health care. Um, people would likely have heard of the Hippocratic Oath and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you know medical practitioners, healthcare workers, they're they're not there to pass judgment on why uh, somebody uh, is in medical distress. They're there to treat patients based on medical need, and so th- th- it's kind of it's it's kind of comparable to that, um, just on an international scale as it relates to rescuing life at sea, and uh, you know I, I, I've I've participated in a number of uh, rescues, uh, some successful and some not. And um, what always amazes me is um, the, the, the degree to which people are prepared to put their life on the line in order to save the lives of others. And um, it's quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, everybody who's involved in this right now is committed to that principle. There's no doubt in my mind. And yet you look at this and, 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 and you know, hope against hope that, that this ends well and then look at, at what the just, the, just in the hindsight, of course, is easy, but to think that you would be in a situation where you'd be so hard to rescue you if something went wrong. In this case, it's obvious that's what's happened here, that it, it's so hard to rescue somebody in these circumstances. We're going to have to look, this, look over the rules here, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I have no doubt that um, when this, is um, resolved, however it plays out, um, that uh, there will be a lot of questions that are are going to be asked about this specific uh, event and um, some of the contributing factors. Um, uh, And there may not be the level of technical uh, explanation or evaluation that people would may expect or, or desire. But ultimately, I think there's going to be a lot of questions about, you know, how, why, and um, how how do how does this type of thing get, uh, if not prevented, how does how does the risk get minimized um, in, in the future? Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know, the, it's as the Coast Guard uh, captain said, it's it's still a search and rescue operation, and 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 everybody is still hopeful, notwithstanding how they and perhaps me and others may feel about about the uh, the potential outcome here and the odds of success. Right, hoping that that they are located, and also, of course, hoping for the safety of all the all the Canadian uh, service people who are out there taking part in this rescue as well, which would simply compound this if that we were to lose uh, somebody. Um, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight, Vice Admiral Norman. I much appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you, Ben, and thank you to your listeners, and uh, um, all the best. Take care. Yeah.
I wanted to talk about a Canadian retail success story that marks its 30th anniversary this year. It was back in 1993 that Cindy Lee, who'd come to Canada in 70, in the 70s from Taiwan, founded TNT Supermarkets. You may have one near you. Uh, they opened two stores in the Vancouver area in just six months back in 93. Well, since then, it has grown to become Canada's largest Asian supermarket chain with some 30 stores in BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. They employ some 10,000 people. Uh, there have been some major milestones along the way, a 2009 sale to grocery giant Loblaw. And in 2014, the handing over of the company reigns from Cindy Lee to daughter Tina Lee, who along with her sister Tiffany happened to be the TNT in TNT. And this summer, they're going to expand outside of Canada, or next summer, rather, in the summer of 2024, they're going to expand outside of Canada, opening a first U.S. store in the Seattle area and a regional office in Los Angeles. We wanted to find out more because it really is one of those great Canadian retail success stories and a mother-to-daughter success story as well. TNT CEO Tina Lee joins me now. Uh, Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. And just for uh, reference, my sister's name is Tiffany. So that's the right. fun part. Tina and yeah. Tiffany. Yeah, amazing. And this goes back. I mean, I've been reading some some you know story, the origin stories, and your mom and how she set it up back in the nineties. Uh, is it true that that as children you used to spend a lot of time sort of going store to store, kind of with a with a your mom's critical eye, looking to see if, and there was never quite the perfect fit for her. Thus, the idea to create TNT. Yes, that's exactly it. My uh, parents immigrated to Vancouver in 1978. And during that time, like it was pretty hard to shop for Asian groceries. Like you had to go, like the only destination was Chinatown. And it's a cute, quaint place. But um, to do a very full shop, you had to go from the butcher shop to the seafood shop to the produce shop to the bakery shop. And, you know, Vancouver, it's raining all the time. So. Right. Uh, and and it's hard to find parking. <laughs> so, right. so that was um, a difficult in, endeavor most of the time. You know, what could she compare the experience to was shopping at the Safeway down the street from where we lived. And it was just night and day. Uh, Safeway at the time was like clean and bright and said, well, we would like a version of this for the Asian community. And um, uh, my father was in the food import business. At first, we, that's where we started. That's where our roots are. And uh, we transitioned and dad said, Mom, I want, you know, you should run the retail business. And that's how the first store got started. And, and I mean, it's been 30 years now. Time does fly, doesn't it? But but it, the, the success of it has been has been remarkable, really. I mean, from from those early days uh, in on the lower mainland, well, in, near, in and around Vancouver. Uh, what do you think the key to that success has been? Because I know there have been others who've tried to do this who haven't quite succeeded. Uh, but somehow TNT found the right the right note with its customers. Yeah, honestly, uh, when I get to chat with my mother and we do the look back, it's pretty incredible how the business has been so well received by different communities all across the country. Uh, we started in uh, the greater Vancouver area, but now we're in Edmonton and Calgary and Toronto, and we never dreamed we'd be in Montreal one day, and now we are. So um, what's the key to that success? You know, I think it started very early with, um, well, my mother being a mother. And 
what other mothers need, making life easy for them, prioritizing fresh, prioritizing uh, the clean and bright environment. And I think for us, more than some of the other grocers is, we had a very big focus in prepared foods, like the in-store bakery, the in-store hot food meals, like that's hard to find. Over the last 30 years, we've sharpened the, the expertise in that area. And I think that also brings, you know, a great flavor for home for a lot of uh, first-generation immigrants, but also just a great exploratory experience for non-Asians. Right, because clearly the the way you the way the stores are are sort of pre- presented and 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 the way they run, and you've called it a complex. It is a complex store when you go in because there's a lot going on in a TNT. Uh, you know, from from the seafood to the prepared food to to everything to the produce. Uh, but how have you had to shift as you've moved across the country? Because you were in markets that clearly where there were there was a lot of of first generation and you know new arrivals to Canada in places mm-hmm. like Richmond, for instance. But then if you go to a place like London, Ontario, for instance, where mm-hmm. I think I think a place you know well. Uh, that changes, right? You kind of have to alter a little bit. Or have you found it, the formula pretty much works wherever you go? You know, it is very fascinating how, um, you know, I I would say that our customer base and people that are gravitating towards TNT, it's expanding. So, you know, I think one thing we do well and why we started the business in the first place was to bring this feeling of nostalgia and a bit of home to first generation East Asians. You know, the country is growing. And so we certainly have that base and the affection from that community. But what's different and evolving as time goes on and as we build out more stores is that all Canadians now are finding TNT a really wonderful shopping experience. You go in and you just Feel the energy. I mean, we, we really tried to make that experience a wonderful shopping experience. And the same way, Asian or not Asian, like almost everybody in Canada, which is a, a very, I would say, mature cultural palette, more than other countries. Right? Canadians have a maturing cultural palette. And everybody has their own favorite Japanese restaurant, favorite dim sum restaurant. Right. You know, I think it's becoming like, well, if you, everybody has their favorite Asian grocer. It is not intimidating to go to a specialty grocer that focuses on Asian flavors uh, because that's you know very much a part of living in Canada. That is becoming mainstream. So what is cool about our ability to open in your markets is actually our ability to appeal to a wider audience. It's people of all cultures that is shopping at TNT now. We haven't changed. I mean we have we have been become better experts at what we do, but the essence of what we do has not changed. We know exactly who we are, but we, uh, we're we just sharing that now to a bigger audience who appreciate what we do. I would also say meat, seafood, produce, you know, those categories obviously have universal appeal and uh, we're getting better and better at that. Grocers have come under a fair amount of heat lately from customers. One thing I do notice when I go to a TNT is you almost have an army of customers who are very price aware. Uh, mm-hmm. That must be complicated because there are, we know that the whole the grocery industry is complicated and complex. Supply mm-hmm. chains are complex, but you almost have in-house experts making sure that your prices are are kept in check to some extent. I don't know how that works business-wise. That's not my forte, but I do notice it when I'm there in the store that you have a lot of people paying very close attention to price points. Oh, our our TNT shoppers are price conscious. No matter what income, everybody loves the deal. 
as we go on in the next in these in these couple of years, like certainly all grocers are facing food inflation. And uh, as a management team, certainly we are very focused in allowing all of our customers, no matter what income level, to shop the whole store with dignity. Like if you are on a budget, you can make it through the whole store and shop every department and get something for a great value for money. So we are very conscious about that. And so uh, we're, we're very focused on um, we're very focused on that. At the same time, we don't shy away from selling great value for money items that are high priced. So, for example, you know, we TNT sells Wagyu beef, TNT right. sells live spot prunts. And so live spot prunts could be twenty nine dollars a pound. Um, but for what it is, you know, the goal is great value for money. Right. And so um, I think uh, every grocer has a lot to do in that area. And uh, we're, we're certainly no di- different. We hope that we do that better and better every day. Tina Lee is the CEO of TNT Supermarkets. Uh, you may have one in your neighborhood. There are certainly many across the country now. And uh, there is another move coming now into the U.S., which is which is exciting. Uh, you've chosen Seattle, which sounds like a natural fit because of, of your you know the company's knowledge of the Lower Mainland. Seattle is not that different a market. I mean, I think a lot of people who live in and around Vancouver and Victoria have been there. Uh, but but your decision to go to the to the U.S. is a big one because it's a different market for you. That's right. It's a it's it's a big one in that we're expanding outside of the country. But, you know, if you focus on the customer, the customer is actually quite similar and they are our customers today. It's really interesting when you ask. um, We can ask customers that are uh, living in Seattle today. And I think TNT is somewhat of a household name, especially in the East Asian community in Seattle. Uh, and that makes the decision actually quite simple. We actually are simply s- serving the customer that we already have. On every American long weekend, we can see many, many customers are driving up into Richmond. They're having a great meal in Richmond, this is, which is a, a wonderful food scene, and then stopping at TNT, filling up their groceries, and then driving back to Seattle. Maybe one in 10 cars in our parking lot have Washington plates. Wow. And we can also tell that on the American long weekends, like the credit cards that we are processing, like they're American credit cards. So um, in that sense, uh, it's a, a very natural expansion, like you said, Ben, and we're simply getting closer to our customers. And we hope that the uh, uh, city of Bellevue and, and the greater Seattle area likes what we do when we get there. Right. And you have knowledge of the States. I mean, you went to UCLA, right? So you've been, you, you kind of know what the American market is like, perhaps more than, than some others. What's it been like for you? Was this always going to be sort of, was this always your business to become the CEO of, or was that, was that something that, uh, that evolved over time as you went through your schooling and then went into your professional life? Mm-hmm. I think it evolved over time. Let's see. So, I mean, obviously, I think Asian families like to um, encourage family businesses. Uh, I am the eldest of three. So there's Tina, Tiffany, and my brother, Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> TT and J just doesn't sound as nice. TT, right. So you a little bit got a chef, got the chef when it comes to naming the business. <laughs> right. But um, it would not, it would be very normal for the family business to have gone to the fun, you know? So right. a really, even it makes it actually a really interesting story in that it's a matriarch story. It's a mother to daughter entrepreneurial story. And there's not that 
many of them. But I, uh, I think it was somewhere that we evolved to. I came, I spent some time, like, as you know, at UCLA, and then I spent some time with uh, Deloitte Consulting before coming back. We had a very interesting milestone becoming part of the Loblaw family in mm-hmm. 2009. And so, you know, jumping all in and, you know, handling that, um, that, uh, uh, that liaising between the two companies. Today, we still operate fairly separate from the business, but it's certainly become not only a company that I, and a, and a business and environment that I grew up in, you know, it feels so natural, but it's a business that I've come to love. Like it's, I find my job way more than a job. I think we are doing something really amazing, um, culturally advancing culture through food you know, providing food in a way we should, you know, celebrate the joy of it, have it become like who we are. And and in that sense, like, I'm all in, you know, I'm game and doing something that's really special, not only for, you know, Asian Canadian families, but for all Canadian families, like this is, you know, food and culture and is become like part of what's, you know, truly Canadian. Yeah, and, and and that it must feel. I mean, I know your mom is still involved, so and you must have to consult. I mean, it must. It, there must be both joys and and the odd strain to take over the family business, especially from mom to daughter. Right? There are, there are. Um, she'll always have an eye out on what you're up to. I, I suspect, or maybe not. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Hmm. Um, you know, well, mom just wrote a book. Right? Yes. yes. So that's how she is uh, involved now in that. I think it's a great time. Like it was, it's our 30th year anniversary. And we talked about like sharing this very unique story. So she spent the last two years writing this autobiography and sharing some of these stories right now. It's only in available in Chinese. We're working on the translation now, but uh, I think we're more than a place that just sells bananas and bok choy. I mean, I think our, our, our culture, the way we do business, the way we bring joy to people's kitchen tables, there's a lot behind that. It starts with the values of my mother and it's grown to become what the entire TNT team and our community has come to value. And then also is, it's like the, what we want to share, even with Americans. You know, it was so surprising about our latest announcement in Seattle was how many Canadians joined in in the conversation. Like, I feel like Canadians are cheering us on. And they're commenting and they're sharing to Americans that don't know what a TNT is. Like, they're typing in the blogs and saying, oh, well, let me tell you about TNT. It's like they're cheering for the home team. You know, I, I just find that, you know, certainly really flattering and uh, excited about growing the business across the border. Well, Tina Lee, it's been a great joy. Thanks so much for your time tonight. All right. Thanks, Ben. Today, of course, is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Part of marking June is National Indigenous History Month. It was marked today by events across the country, both celebrating Indigenous culture, as you may have heard on different newscasts across the Chorus Network today, and also to reflect on Indigenous history on these lands. In Ottawa, residential and day school survivors shared their stories at a ceremony on Parliament Hill this morning. The Prime Minister and Governor General Mary Simon were among those in attendance as the survivor's flag, the survivor's flag, was raised to commemorate uh, today. Trudeau says that day is is meant not just to remember the past, but to celebrate the present. Every day, I see Indigenous peoples stepping up in extraordinary ways to shape not just the future of their communities or of their nations, but of this country. Because while residential schools were trying to teach Indigenous peoples that their language had no value, 
that their cultures had no value, that their identity had no value. Every other school in Canada was teaching non-Indigenous kids the same thing. The survivor's flag is meant to honour residential school survivors and all the lives and communities affected by the residential school system in Canada. Catholic Day School survivor Andrew Carrier encouraged Canadians to reflect on the history of the schools, which operated for more than a century, of course. And uh, Navalik Tulugunuk, uh, an Inuit residential school survivor, says it has taken many years for Canadians to acknowledge the truth. The survivor's flag symbolizes the hope of commitment that governments, churches, and people across Canada will continue to acknowledge these truths. Even today, there are some saying that it never happened. We must honor the children, continue to build on the promises of reconciliation. And it is due to the courage and determination of survivors, their families, and our communities that we are here today on Parliament Hill. Tulugunuk adds that it is critical for, for survivors to be heard and for their stories to be incorporated into this country's collective awareness. Well, my next guest has long made that her mission as well. And much, much more. Michelle Good is a descendant of the Battle River Cree and a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, the daughter of residential school survivors. She's worked with Indigenous organizations since she was a teenager. But in 2021, she released her debut novel, the multiple award-winning Five Little Indians. And she has a new book out, one that she actually did a bit of a detour to write. There was another one in the works, and this one instead called Truth Telling, a Seven Conversations About Indigenous Life in Canada, was the book she felt she had to write. It's a series of essays, seven in all, uh, dealing with, with different stories about Indigenous life in this country. And Michelle Good joins me now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tell me about today for you. I, I realize you did you did a few talks. You're obviously in demand. People want to hear what you have to say. Uh, you must feel, I wouldn't call it a duty, but this is an opportunity to continue to share the stories that you need to, and you feel that need to be shared. That's exactly for me. Um, you know, everybody's going to have a different perspective on, you know, this day and what's important to them about this day. And for me, it is because it creates the opportunity for conversations and for dialogue, which is critical. It's absolutely critical. For others, it's, you know, an expression of art, which I really appreciate and value. Um, you know, education in terms of, you know, teaching people cultural history and also education, as in the clip uh, earlier, about the real history in Canada. Truth-telling. Um, I know this, I, I'd read, of course, I, I'd seen interviews with you when Five Little Indians came out after reading it. And 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 you started talking about a book that was sort of historical fiction. Uh, your great-grandmother had been born 100 years before you. And then suddenly, this book comes out, Truth-telling. And it was interesting because it feels like this was a book that you had to write. You felt it was time for this to come first. Tell me a bit about it and what the, I mean, the title kind of says it all, doesn't it? Well, I hope so. And yes, I was working on this novel, and it was really the response to Five Little Indians. I was so, I thoroughly expected that that would be a niche book for a niche audience. Um, and when it had the kind of reception that it did with readers, it was just phenomenal, wonderful. Uh, people really wanting to engage in meaningful uh, conversation about meaningful and substantive reconciliation. And so I thought, well, this is the time, you know, there is this willingness. Of course, there's still lots of resistance to, you know, truth and reconciliation, truly. But there is a, a, a solid core of people out there 
that want to engage in these conversations. So I thought, well, let's take this moment and do our best with it. I remember hearing you say that you wrote Five Little Indians for all those who had said to you over the many, many years, why can't they just get over it? Uh, oh my what, what was the yeah. what was the truth in truth telling? What was the what were you responding to? What do they want? That equally want? horrible question. What do they want? And of right. course, the answer to that is the the scrubbing of Canadian systems and Canadian society of the remnants of colonial policy and procedure and law. Which which is it can take on many many can mean many different things. I suppose you know that is a, a very big subject. But you've broken it down into seven stories or to seven different essays. One of them, um, you know, one of them is is about I think it's called uh, racism uh, carefully sown, which is sort of looks at at both your family because you have uh, parents who are both indigenous and non indigenous or family that's both indigenous and non indigenous, and just how that came together, where some of these attitudes were born and how they persist. Yes, and that's that's something that's been an ongoing curiosity to me. It's the idea that non-Indigenous society also has an oral history, um, an oral tradition, if you will. And I began thinking years ago now, I began thinking about what did all the little children of, of the Fathers of Confederation, the founders of residential schools, the policymakers that made residential schools, you know, uh, mandatory. What were the children hearing about Indigenous people? And even further back, um, you know, in the early colonial days, what were the children hearing about Indigenous people? And it's my view, and I believe it strongly, that that those, those perceptions, those earliest horrible colonial perceptions of Indigenous people is what informs general understanding about Indigenous people today. And I use the example of my grandmother, And my mother, Um, my grandmother was non-Indigenous. My father was non-Indigenous. And when my mother and he were going to get married, and this was in the 50s. Okay, I know for many people that seems like forever ago, but it wasn't. (laughs) And uh, she was just mortified, horrified at the notion of her son marrying an Indigenous person. And, And I posed the question, is she a monster? And I provide the answer, certainly not. She was a woman of her day. And that's what I think about racism, is that it's just been taught for so long, intentionally and unintentionally, that it's become woven into the fabric of Canadian society. And yet you tell a story about teaching at UBC, uh, you know, that one of those aptly named courses, you know, the, the history of everything in a year, uh, the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada, I think it was called. And this is not that long ago. And your students came up with some of the same, maybe not with the same vitriol, but with some of the similar stereotypes much, much later. So these things persist and are hard to break down. They are. And it was a very interesting experiment in that, in that class. And I just asked people, what do you know about Indigenous people? And as you say, all of the old stereotypes, once people felt comfortable, all those stereotypes started coming out. And then I asked them, now, how do you know this? And, you know, to their credit, they were just astounded that they felt that they knew these things, but they had no idea how they came to know those things to be true. And I think, you know, that's the evidence that we've all been subconsciously directed to think of Indigenous people in a certain way and not a good way. And, um, you know, and I'm hoping that these kinds of invitations to conversation 
will help people to reconsider what they think they know and begin educating themselves as to what our history is truly like through an Indigenous lens. Because truth-telling is not about, um, it's an invitation to discuss and an invitation to reflect, but there are some hard truths in there. There are some hard truths in there. There are. And so, you know, I'm thinking a lot right now about two things. One is the, um, you know, potential unmarked graves and the people who felt that it was their right to go there unannounced without permission and to try to dig up and see if there are any dead children there. I saw a tweet on Twitter today saying where the person, obviously a non-Indigenous person, was saying, look, all we want is one body. As though we are obligated to prove that so many children died at residential school. And to all of those people, I say, you don't need to believe us. You don't even need to talk to us about it. Go to your own records where Duncan Campbell Scott in, I believe, 1920 or the early 1900s wrote an essay saying that up to 50% of children in some schools die. This was, of course, the superintendent of Indian Affairs at the time. So go to your own records and you'll know that there were just a tremendous number of deaths. And... I don't say these things or write about these things for people to feel terrible about themselves. I write them so that they will come to grips with the truth because only when they do will we be able to sit down and reasonably create solutions to the issues that we're facing. Author Michelle Good is with us this half hour talking about her new book called Truth Telling, Seven Conversations About Indigenous Life in Canada. Uh, uh, Michelle, I was actually in a bookstore leafing through it today. That's what I do sometimes when I, when I need to get through a book quickly at Monroe's here in Victoria. And I saw the, the chapter Lucy and the Football and I thought, wow, what an interesting what an interesting because I mean I mean I remember Peanuts very well, so I remember the the you know basically the parable of Lucy and the Football. In this context, uh, how did you if you could explain how how you used it to try to explain <laughs> to all Canadians what are, what exactly this meant in terms of reconciliation? Well, I hope that that lots of people would remember Lucy and the football because what you have there is Lucy making a promise to Charlie Brown, "I will not pull out the football, even though." She's compulsively done this forever. I will not pull out the football. And Charlie Brown is required, basically, to trust her. And he runs, she pulls the football, he falls flat on his back. And that I use that example to describe the relationship between government, whether it's colonial government or the federal government, and Indigenous people, where there have been these promises, these uh, exchange from the earliest treaties, Okay, from the very earliest treaties in the East, where it was agreed that they were independent nations separate from each other, but more like like brothers, but just separate, that they were independent nations running themselves. And throughout Canadian history, policy and law has been changed to out of, you know, while out of one side of the mouth, they're saying, yes, you are independent, you are sovereign, you are, uh, you know, self-determining. The, the foundation of colonial values in Canadian law prevents that from ever happening. And so it's the promise out of one side of the mouth and the reality 
out of the other side of the mouth, and that it's time to stop that. We can't reconcile so long as, you know, we are limited by the vestiges of colonialism in our systems. When one looks at today, for instance, and the raising of the of the uh, the residential school survivors flag in Ottawa and so on, it feels like the football is being left there longer. You're coming, the foot is getting closer to the ball, but I'm wondering if you see it that way. Not necessarily. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, as you said earlier, I've been involved as an activist since I was a teenager, and I would have never, ever in a million years imagined people giving land acknowledgement. Right. <laughs> acknowledging the pre-existing right of Indigenous people to the land and so on. Never. There has been profound progress, and I can't deny that. At the same time, I think we sometimes run the risk of um, these things becoming performative um, in the sense that, you know, you <laughs> you, you say your land, uh, your land acknowledgement like an absent-minded genuflection and then just carry on, um, and you can feel that you've done your duty that you've, you know, that you are being, um, you know, that you are contributing and helpful, but it has to be substantive. The um, the actions that uh, are, are dedicated to reconciliation must be substantive, and that's why so few of the calls to action have been implemented. Because uh, if you look at the ones that have been implemented, they're things that just require a one-off. Um, none of the justice you know, calls to actions have really, you know, been implemented because it requires a change to system, right? If it's just a one-off, like the missing and murdered women's uh, um, tribunal, that report is sitting collecting dust, but it was a one-off they could do, um, providing more money to Canada Council to support Indigenous authors. Again, a one-off. So those things are happening, but the real fundamental change that must happen is not because our structures prevent it. And truth-telling, listeners, if you have a look at it, will will lead you down the path to some of these realities so that conversation can continue or at least progress. Um, I hate to put you on the spot, uh, Michelle, but but your next book, you must still be working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I will be back working on it. I'm back on organizing it and and getting back into the fiction writing mind, you know, space. It's a little oh. different than, than writing uh, essays, yeah. I've, no, I've never been able to write more than a page, so my, my, my sympathies <laughs> and my envies go out to you uh, tonight. Uh, it, it's a great pleasure, Michelle. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you as well. Have a good evening. This is the time of the week where we talk to a journalist who's been doing some interesting and exciting work over the past little while. Perhaps no one has traveled quite as much as my next guest who's been up in northern Alberta, up in northern BC, and other spots uh, in between as well. In the last half hour, we spoke with Michelle Good, the author, about the vital role that Indigenous authors play in sharing the stories of Indigenous peoples in Canada. And that is no less true of current events and news as well, often the first page of history, as it's sometimes called justified or not. My next guest happens to be both. Uh, her book is called Our Voice of Fire, and Brandy Morin has been reporting from the front lines of major events impacting Indigenous communities uh, right across Canada, including the recent wildfires that tore through northern Alberta. This is Alan Adam, chief of the Athabascan Chippewan First Nation. I'm Alan Adam. I'm the chief of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. 
It's been a very emotional few days here, and uh, we're doing our best. It's all we can do. We're at Mother Nature's hands. Again, uh, you may remember back to the end of May when uh, Fort Chippewan was evacuated. May 30th, an out-of-control wildfire began moving towards the community. More than 1,000 people had to be airlifted out or escaped on boats because there is no road in. Most evacuees left by May the 31st. The good news is some of them are starting to return now. I think there's a big return tomorrow. But Brandy Morton was up there. She was granted access to the evacuation zone just a few days after everyone had left. Here at um, Miccosoo Cree Reserve here just outside of Fort Chippewan and they have been working to prep this community to protect it from the fire and um, they have cleared this whole field behind me and they have excavators working. You can see the fire is very close to the community. The community has been evacuated. We have been granted special access to view. This is Allison Bay and it is most at risk to these wildfires. Brandy Morin there up uh, near Fort Chippewan at the beginning of June. Uh, she is a Cree Iroquois French multimedia journalist from Treaty 6 Territory in Alberta. Her book, again, is called Our Voice of Fire. And her reporting, you can see in many, many places. She may fill in some of the ones I missed, but I've seen her on Al Jazeera, BBC World, Ricochet Media, The Real News Network, News, and elsewhere. And Brandy joins me now. Thanks so much. Welcome back. Oh, Tonze, thank you for having me. And and most recently, I did a feature for Rolling Stone magazine. So that was so, oh wow, that's that right, that's right. How did I forget that one? I saw you tweet about it. how did I how did I forget that one? <laughs> While you've been busy uh, of late, I mean, there's just been a lot going on. But tell me about this this move up to Fort yeah. Chippewan because you were on uh, Lake mm. Athabasca, which is massive, and that's a real that's that's yeah. that's that was a real big story, and and you lost your voice and all of it. <laughs> yes, I mean, we um, decided to go uh, last minute. I had, you know, heard that the community had been evacuated and, and I happened to be home and not on the road on another assignment. So I called up my friend, award-winning photojournalist, Amber Bracken. She also was free. We were supported by Ricochet Media and Indigenous. And we jumped in our vehicle on, on that Thursday morning went up there and the initial plan was to just cover the evacuees that were coming out of Fort Chip. They were um, evacuating by a plane and boat and coming into Fort Mackay First Nation, which is about 45 minutes south of Fort McMurray. So we did that, met, you know, the oldest resident of uh, Fort uh, Chippewan, Madeline Pichet. She was 93 years old. She had been evacuated and was staying at an old uh, folks residence there in Fort Mackay and and met some other families that were scattered at different hotels in Fort McMurray. But um, we happened to learn about some volunteers that were taking their boats from Fort Mackay the next morning to go bring supplies to residents or evacuees of Fort Chip that had um, evacuated to their cabins. So a lot of people have different cabins um, that they live in half the year uh, along the Athabasca River, and they do Mm -hmm. different things. They live off the land, they drop. So we hopped in a boat with them, and uh, they were also going to Fort Chippewan because they had to uh, fill up with gas. And and we and I remember, you know, it, it's a multiple hour ride on this river and you have to, you know, dodge um, big logs and sandbars. And the guys that were driving really have to know this river and, and know how to navigate it. But 
it was more treacherous because of the smoke and it was scary at times. And I had a, an N5, uh, N95 mask on and, and there were times where I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm like going into the apocalypse. It was insane. Yeah. And this was a big story for a number of reasons. I think you pointed it out in your reporting that, you know, those who who, who remember, who, those who've lived there for a long time had mm-hmm. never seen anything like this. Yeah. I mean, this community has really come through a lot, and especially as of late. So not only was this the first time that the entire community of Fort Chippewan, which is made up of the Athabasca Chippewan um, <clears throat> First Nation, the Miccosee Cree Nation, as well as the Fort Mackay Métis, but their entire community was evacuated due to this threat of this wildfire. And just a couple of months prior, this community had been dealing with millions of liters of um, tailings that had been uh, leaked, you know, into the Athabasca River, which is their main water source. And they had, you know, they've been dealing with a lot of different toxins and pollution coming down from Alberta's oil fans for many years and, and many of their people becoming sick with a rare uh, bile duct cancer. And so all these different things compounding. And, and one of the things that we, that we know that is causing these unprecedented wildfires across the country, one of the causes of them is climate change, is unprecedented you know, heat and dryness. And so we have this community that's already dealing with all of these different impacts and, and they had this this wildfire, this inferno, you know, at their back door, threatening to burn them out. And so it was a, it was just a really um, chaotic, um, heartbreaking scene, especially to witness leaders, chiefs such as Alan Adam, um, you know, um, you know, just, just breaking down and being overwhelmed with the severity of the situation. But when we did get to the community, I was really, impressed by what I saw on the ground. So although, you know, there was this chaos and there was helicopters and planes coming and going and filling up with water to try and fight these, you know, flames and, and um, firefighters and such, there had been a number of community members that had volunteered to stay behind to help fight the fires as well as the chiefs of the community. And, you know, we went to this big community meeting on, on one of the evenings and they were all working together whether it was protecting the different homes with um, sprinkler systems or clearing debris and things like that. They were all, you know, coming together. Some of them hadn't slept for multiple days at a time, but it was really something to see. Yeah, and an important story to tell, too. I mean, there weren't, there wasn't a lot of coverage. I mean, there was a lot going on mm-hmm. at the time. There were fires burning in a lot of places. I think a lot of people were paying attention, if I remember correctly, to Halifax at the time. But uh, you were one of the few up there, or, or maybe the only one up there telling this story. And, and there was a real importance to it, because you mentioned it's a real confluence of factors that are really uh, making it life very difficult for, for, the, for these three groups that live together uh, yeah. in, in this area. And, and, you know, I was reading today that they're talking about wanting to build a road up into the Northwest Territory so they finally have a road they can use for situations mm. like this. Well, and that's something, too, that we really thought was important to try to document and try to, to relay um, through uh, this what we were doing is because it is such a remote area that people don't understand that when there's this, this an emergency like that, like literally you can... You have to get people out by plane or boat. And, you know, these are people that are born and raised here and and live there all their life. And that's all they know. You know what I mean? And so we really tried to portray that, you know, from 
you know, going up there on these boats and, um, you know, the, the, the number, I think it took about five or six hours to, to get from Fort Mackay to Fort Chip and, and things like that to really, you know, let the public know that's kind of also what stood out. A lot of Native communities are in these remote areas and a lot of the other communities that are impacted are having to be evacuated from these various wildfires that are happening across the country. They have access, you know, to, um, you know, more emergency services. They have um, routes, you know, to get out. They have other, um, you know, other options, whereas it's a lot, lot more different complications uh, when it comes to remote First Nations communities. I've arrived at Gidimden Camp here in unceded Wet'suwet'en territories, and uh, there are uh, Wet'suwet'en people here whose traditional territories this is, as well as uh, supporters and land defenders, water protectors, and um, the mood is kind of tense right now. They're working to process through the arrests that were made yesterday with the sudden raid by the RCMP. Brandy Morin, uh, one of the other uh, reporting trips she's been on of late was up to northern BC, Wet'suwet'en territory, where, of course, the coastal gas link pipeline is being built. Uh, Brandy Morin is a multimedia journalist, an award-winning multimedia journalist, and she's with us this half hour. Uh, that was another, I mean, that's another big trip that you took and another story uh, that has been, you know, told in in sort of spurts at times, but ignored for a mm-hmm. lot of time as well. Uh, what was that? What was that reporting trip for you like? Yeah, you know, so I've been covering that conflict for several years now, and that last trip was a a few months ago, a couple of few months ago. I had heard about the the arrests of these uh, land defenders at the Ginnabin camp, and it wasn't known as to whether the police were going to make further arrests, and there was no media on site to really document that. And, and in the past, um, you know, their police have been known to become, you know, violent uh, when making these arrests. So I thought it was really important to, you know, to be there to document that. So I jumped in my vehicle and headed out there again. And um, so there were no further arrests made, but, um, you know, the land defenders there were, you know, shooken up. I mean, a couple of them that, you know, they, they are daughters of, the hereditary chief, um, whose traditional territory that is in, in Gidimden. And, and one of them, uh, Jossie Alec, had been arrested in that infamous November um, um, 2021 raid right. that saw like around 30 land defenders um, arrested. So they were really, you know, triggered and, and shook up by that. Um, and I, um, yeah, it was... Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, something that I definitely like to keep tabs on. Yeah, I mean, that story, I mean, I'm in BC, so clearly familiar with with, this, with that story and how it's been told overall. Uh, you, you, you must feel that it's necessary to continue to bring the perspective that you bring to that story as well, to mm-hmm. hear from the people that you are able to talk to, that not everyone's able to talk to, of course, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell these stories from an Indigenous perspective. And, um, you know, um, I have built relationships in order to to be able to do that in, you know, in a conflict such as what's happening in Mitsutin territory, where there is a lot of 
um, you know, high tension and security culture and different things within these camps um, between these land defenders and the police and the, and the, and the, you know, the postal gasoline company. But I have, you know, built up these relationships to be able to embed and, and be there in the camps to, you know, document uh, what's going on and, and what, um, you know, what they're going through. And I think that that's very important because we, there is a lot of different, um, it's a very complex situation as well. And, there, you know, it's covered from the, um, I guess, the traditional um, colonial, like, media legacy viewpoint. But at the same time, um, you know, these these territories that these, um, these people are trying to um, protect are unceded territories, and they are you know, with Suetin hereditary territories, which have been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's it's so complicated. Um, and so I think for the public to be able to really understand all the complexities about what's going on up there, it's really important to understand and know the, the, the context behind it all, right? And so right. I, I try to tell that uh, point from, you know, from the people. I, I always try to... Um, you know, to, to go in there and, um, you know, bring people on the ground as if they're right there with me. Right. I mean, I guess from, from a distance, it's always appeared to be, a, you know, sort of an internal battle between those within the, the wet sweat and who've said yes to this and those who, who mm. have not. And that's a battle between hereditary chiefs and, and others and, and so on. And then there's coastal gas link and there's the government and there's all these things going on. But, but I guess there have mm-hmm. been, um, you know, clearly there are, there are interests that want to see this, this pipeline get built, uh, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but within mm-hmm. the context of the community itself, what, it, what is, how are we getting it wrong and how should we get it right? I guess is is the ultimate question because i think there's been uh i think everyone has it's it's like uh, that movie rashomon where everyone has a different view mm-hmm. of what's happening and their own interpretation of what's going on well in my view um i mean i've been telling indigenous stories specifically for over 10 years i've been a journalist for around 13 years and from my view and i have you know again been following this story for a number of years and and several years ago i went and visited I think it was about six, six or so different First Nations along the pipeline route to find out the backstory, um, because um, the majority of the First Nations that are located along the route did sign on um, mm-hmm. and, and you know sign on to this project and agree to it. But the majority of the the leadership of these nations that I did meet with and talk to, you know, it was the same old story. They told me that they were backed into a corner and that they basically felt they had no other choice other than to sign on to this project and that it was going to happen whether or not, you know, they, they wanted it to or not. And, you know, there are a number of different um, factors that played in such as, you know, economic, you know, um, benefits when our people are already suffering with, you know, different um, inequalities and, and, and things like that. But, you know, when it comes specifically to the Wet'suwet'en nation and every nation, has that right to say yes or no. Um, but when it comes to the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders, I think what a lot of people miss is that, you know, how um, Coastal Gaslink, they, they, they like to promote that they have the permission of all of the First Nations along the road, including the Wet'suwet'en, but people do not understand that they have the permission of the elected Wet'suwet'en leaders, which is a 
Indian Act leadership uh, construct with, you know, and they only have um, they only have jurisdiction within the reserve boundaries. These are the right. traditional territories of the Wet'suwet'en, and it's the hereditary leaders that have that say, and they have said no. And so it's, you know, it's really hard to sign up in just a few sentences. It but is, yeah. Is basic premise. Yeah. Um, you know, Bradley, thank you so much once again for joining. It's, it's just interesting to get your perspective on these stories because to have conversations about what's going on in this country, we need people who understand the perspectives mm. that you've been able to find as well. And not everyone gets the access and talks to the people that you talk to. So it's always great to have you on uh, to pick your brain, as, as they might say. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much once again. I appreciate it so much, Ben. Hi, hi. Take care. Thank you. We talked about wildfires in northern Alberta in the last half hour with uh, multimedia journalist Brandy Morin. And one of the really interesting things that emerged as the smoke has cleared, so to speak, and as we're talking a little bit less about these wildfires, even though they continue to burn uh, in many places, um, was the, a phenomenon, another fast-spreading phenomenon, social media. There was a lot of stuff circulating at the height of the sort of wildfire story, especially as the smoke drifted south and ended up hitting places like Toronto and Ottawa and New York City and Washington. I mean, these are big, huge media markets. And there was a lot of talk about what is this smoke? Where is it coming from? What's caused these fires? And there was stuff circulating online, disinformation circulating online, questioning where these fires, how these fires had begun. In fact, you heard little pieces of it, snippets of it, in the words of, say, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, when she talked about needing to find, you know, have a good look at how these fires started, suggesting that somehow there was deliberate, you know, there was arson out there, that these fires were being deliberately set by people with a political agenda, which, of course, if you think about it logically, it sounds ridiculous, right? Uh, just because of the, of the of the intensity of the fires that are set, sure there are you know there are human caused fires. There are many different ways that that happens. But the idea that there were groups of people uh, throwing matches in, into these very into these tinder boxes for political reasons, if you think about it on on the surface, seems ridiculous, right? Like who would do that and why? And and who would even bother to set that up? I mean, again, that's what the thing with conspiracy theories are. I mean, they they do spread really quickly because they are attention grabbing, but they seem to have absolutely no basis in reality. Uh, and then, of course, this began to spread even wider as there were concerns over, you know, this became an issue of climate change. And of course, in America and in Canada, to some extent, climate change is such a heavily politicized issue at times. Uh, so the idea that somehow these fires, and we know that they've been exacerbated uh, by climate change, uh, that somehow this was sort of proof positive of climate change was also met with a lot of resistance. So all of a sudden, the fires enter this vortex of conspiracy theory and politicization and politics on both sides of the border. And there was a group in the US called Media Matters that was sort of monitoring the social media side of this. And we thought it'd be really interesting to find out what it is that they spotted, particularly since there was a lot of Canada Canada involved here. Alison Fisher is Climate and Energy Program Director with Media Matters, and she's in Washington, DC. Alison, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Well, the wildfires and the smoke have dissipated, I know, quite a bit now, a little bit. I mean, the wildfires are still burning, but it's not as burning an issue. Uh, but when the smoke is clear, there's some, now that it has, there's some pretty interesting things being revealed. Part of it is the spread of these conspiracy theories and disinformation. What, what, what was going on exactly? And, and it really was quite prevalent. 
Yeah. So I think the first thing that's really important to understand is just how ripe the environment is for misinformation and conspiracies during these types of moments. So um, in this case, you had impacts from a climate fueled event from hundreds of miles away, impacting huge population centers in the U.S., um, in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, that understand are not accustomed to wildfires like our, our neighbors to the West. And really leaving these folks asking, why is this happening? So for many people, they're going to get those answers from experts and officials through, you know, traditional and trusted media sources, but others are going to be exposed, and particularly those who get their information online, are going to get exposed to those who are intentionally creating alternative narratives about wildfires that fit in with more of a conspiratorial worldview. And in this case, really distracts from the clear fingerprints of climate change. When you have these high profile events happen, you have a community of bad actors online at the ready to pollute the information supply, which at best, right, is creating confusion about what's happening um, and why. But at worst, is kind of sowing and feeding into this ongoing problem, sowing distrust in government officials, sowing distrust in the news outlets that are reporting on these fires. And then here in the U.S. as well, really contributing to this anti-science bend or climate denial, really, among those on the right. It's interesting you mentioned a community because I, that was that was where I was going to afterwards. Uh, we know that in this case, a lot of the there was a, a several different conspiracy theories going on. The most prevalent of which is that these fires were somehow being deliberately set by those who would. I don't know what discredit something or other. It was odd what the motive would be, but there was a lot of a lot of it running. I mean, not to use the wildfire analogy too gratuitously, but you know the conditions were ripe for it to spread, and it did spread, uh, much like fire does. Uh, what is this community, and what was the message being spread around these fires? Yeah. So in this specific case, right? So Media Matters documented a number of videos that were originating on TikTok. Um, And these videos were falsely claiming that the wildfires had been started deliberately by helicopter or drone, among some other even more French conspiracies. Mm -hmm. And then these videos spread across social media, garnering millions of views, right? And not just on TikTok, but kind of jumping into other platforms, Twitter, Telegram, therefore exposing even bigger audiences to this information. Um, and just to give you a little bit, a little bit more specifics about what they were doing. So conspiracy theorists on the social media platforms kind of seized on imagery of helicopters just doing prescribed burns. So for audiences that are on the West Coast or in Canada that are kind of more accustomed to wildfire season and kind of ways that they're managed. These prescribed burns are very common. Seeing helicopters start them, managing them, putting them out to try to reduce the amount of fuel that's then on the ground during the season. Again, very routine. For other audiences, this imagery may be confusing and they're not sure how to reconcile it. And so, you know, that makes them vulnerable to the conspiracy, right? So they're taking this imagery, 
they're slapping on some text that suggests something nefarious and then pushing it out to their audiences. And as I said, like in this particular case, we're looking at getting millions of eyeballs on this stuff. Um, And in some cases, the, the more viral ones were eventually taken down. But then again, when we're talking about mitigation on the part of the platforms, who maybe even in good faith are trying to stop the spread of this type of misinformation, what that really amounts to is just like too little too late, right? Like the damage has already been done. Um, And that certainly was the case, you know, during this moment where, you know, smoke was visible across the U.S. Do you have a sense of of what the motive would be then? I mean, beyond the, I guess it's to sow distrust and to advance narrative, you know, alternative narratives as incorrect as they can be. I notice how hard it is because I noticed that people were posting sort of responses from officials in you know places like Quebec or Ontario trying to trying to debunk this, and it, and the science always seems to land a little bit flat compared to the conspiracy, right? Uh, unfortunately, but did you have do we have an idea of why this would be done? The prevailing narrative coming out of the experts coming across traditional media and the trusted sources are, you know, that this is a combination of climate change, maybe some forest management issues. These are started by lightning, you know, all very like normal routine things that we know about the wildfire season. What these bad actors want to do is kind of distract from that narrative and create a different reality. So it's not climate change. It's something different, right? It also feeds into kind of this existing conspiratorial worldview, um, in some cases, suggesting that pandemic-related lockdowns, you know, we're we're prepping populations for climate lockdowns, or more generally that the climate crisis has been manufactured as a means to control the population. These ideas are very prevalent that there's some sort of other global thing happening to control the population and to, you know, enforce rules on upon them, um, taking away their freedoms and liberties, um, and that climate change has been manufactured as a tool to do that. And so, those are the kind of ideas that kind of get spread and proliferate during these moments. Allison Fisher is Climate and Energy Program Director at Media Matters in Washington, D.C., a media watchdog. Allison, when you look at the impact of this, I guess uh, you know, what I found really interesting is all of a sudden, you know, your people in New York City are choking on smoke. And and it's turned into a culture war debate already as of somehow wearing a mask to, to prevent, you know, prevent inhaling this stuff was somehow seen as became part of this familiar narrative that's going on. I, I guess this is a familiar playbook now. It doesn't matter what the event is. It's quickly slotted into this to this view. Uh, and it seems like it's a hard one to a hard one to combat. Yeah, I think you hit the you hit it right on the head. I, You know, one of the things that um we learn in these moments, other than the failure of the platforms to prevent the spread of misinformation, is that climate reckoning on the right is not coming. So no matter how clear the evidence, no matter how bad it gets, this commitment and this entrenchment around climate denial seems to strengthen and then gets moved into kind of this these bigger narratives um, and cultural narratives that are just really hard to combat. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges we had here in Canada is that clearly, you know, wildfires are part of, you know, are con- have been going on for millennia here uh, and in the U.S. They are part of the natural cycle of things. Some of them can be attributed, you know, some parts of it can be attributed directly to climate change. Certainly, they become a lot more ferocious and a lot bigger and and that's you know that's fueling it but it's a complex argument and of course social media doesn't do well with with complexity and i feel like that's where this became such a ripe area because some of the conspiracy theories floating around were sh- shocking even for someone who has been watching wildfire coverage for a very long time i mean it's shocking in the way that they seem so out out there yeah i agree i you know i'm not <laughs> i i don't monitor those spaces either and so when i see some of this stuff it does kind of take you aback, but then you have to you have to really understand in going back to our earlier discussion, like there are communities that are kind of built around this conspiratorial worldview that don't that don't trust the information that is coming from, you know, the sources that the trusted sources that that we've grown up with. As you start to kind of peel back those layers, you see that anything is possible in this world. And for the social media companies themselves, one would imagine that much like, you know, like any natural disaster, I suppose they could do a better job of cracking down on this. But do they even know what's spreading when it's spreading? In other words, do they even see the smoke when the fire is already burning? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one thing that we would say to that um, and using this as kind of a case study is this is a signal to the platforms that they have to be hypervigilant during these moments where we know misinformation is going to spread, when we know bad actors are going to try to weaponize this moment. And that's when they have to kind of bring all of their resources to bear to try to stop the spread. Taking a step back from that, thinking about TikTok in particular, they actually have policy. You know, some of these platforms that we're talking about where it's spreading, like, they haven't even taken that step to say like, we agree that this is a problem and we have a policy to try to curtail this particular type of information from spreading. TikTok does. And so in this case, what we say to them, one is let's be hypervigilant during these moments. And two, like let's try to enforce the policy um, that you already have on the books. Yeah, because I think this was a reminder of seeing the apocalyptic view of of Manhattan, for instance, was a reminder that in cases of emergencies, and this was an emergency, wasn't, you know, it wasn't an earthquake, but in times of emergency, false information spreading on social media can, can have a pretty detrimental effect. And this may have just been a test run for it because smoke, again, has its long term effects, but, you know, it, it's more of a discomfort at the time. But if it had been something more serious and people are going to social media, what they find there is, is an issue. Yeah, look, I mean, social media, the benefit of it is, is that it can, particularly in moments of crisis, disseminate information very quickly into a huge number of people. The flip side of that is that it can also disseminate disinformation to a huge group of people. It's really difficult. Alison Fisher, thanks so much for uh, for your work on this. And thanks for thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Oh, yes. The appeal of yesterday. Mark just sent me an email uh, saying the only good thing about the past was the music. And yeah, I think a lot of us could agree that the music of our youth or perhaps the music of the past was more preferable, was nicer sounding to our ears than some modern stuff. Right. I try to be I try not to get too curmudgeonly about music. I try to listen to new stuff as well. But sometimes it's tough. But listen, 
There is one thing, it appears, that almost all of us around the world, anyone who's ever been surveyed about this, doesn't from you know different corners of the world, uh, different age groups, different political groups, different ethnic backgrounds, um, that we all seem to agree on. And that is that things were better when. <laughs> when doesn't really matter. It just means there was a time where we were kinder to each other, more ethical, more moral. In other words, uh, you know, more considerate, less selfish, uh, friendlier. That in some ways we live in a sort of cool, colder, crueler society now than existed, say, 20 years ago. Um, what it's, it's often referred to as moral decline. So, for instance, uh, there was a survey I was reading today that shows that in terms of major concerns amongst American voters, the state of moral values, whatever that happens to mean, is a concern of 69% of Republicans and those who lean Republican and only 39% of Democrats and those lean Democrat. Now, that's probably because in America, a lot of the culture war stuff has been framed for Republican voters or for those who don't like the Democrats, has been framed as this either or thing, right? It's become this idea that somehow there was a different past and therefore we should try to return to it. But of course, there is no turning back the clock. You can't do it. And even if you did, you might recognize that what you thought was a golden era was just as broken or unbroken as things are today. Add it all up. And the idea that there was a golden age and that you're or we are not living in it and that we're lured by a, the appeal of politicians who promise a return to that time all happens to be, at least according to my next guest, something of a myth. It's cognitive biases that convince us that things were better when actually they really weren't. Uh, Adam Mastroianni is an experimental psychologist. You can find his science blog on Substack and experimental history. And he is one of the studies, the co-authors of this study that really, for the first time, really looked into what this meant, this idea of moral decline, not just here, but right around the world. And he joins me now. Adam, thank you so much. You can find people all the way back in ancient Roman times complaining about how people are worse today than they used to be. So we are we are not the first. Tell me a bit about this notion of, of I guess you you dissect this somewhat, this idea of moral decline, because it could be a very broad concept, but you've looked at it in a pretty specific way. Yeah. So if we could have called the paper the illusion of decline in kindness and friendship and ethicality and civility. We would have done that, but we didn't have. We ran up against the character limit, so we call it the illusion of moral decline. But really, that's what it is. It is the perception that people are less good to one another now than they used to be. We don't also want to try to answer like, well, what is right and wrong? What we really want to know is, okay, what do people agree on as right and wrong? Because there are some things that people agree. For those things, have those things changed over time? Yeah, this always strikes back to, you know, people were nicer to each other then, or people used to hold the door door open for each other then, or there's always, I mean, there's a whole set of behaviors that I think fall in, that are encompassed in this idea of kindness and kindness and civility and so on. What I found really interesting about your work is, is that uh, when going out to figure out how this was perceived, I can't imagine anything that's more, that people agree on more universally than the fact that yesterday was better than today, tomorrow will be worse, and that yesteryear was great. Yeah. Yeah, we find this all over the world. So you might think, oh, this, you know, this is something that we think in Western democracies or industrialized countries. No, any country that's ever been surveyed or asked this question uh, will tell you moral decline is a problem in our country. In fact, it's not even a minor problem. It's a moderately big or, or, or very big problem. You also might think that this is a, the kind of thing that only certain people say, that this is something that old people say, or this right. is something that conservatives say. 
And we do find that when you ask older people how kind, honest, nice, and good are people today, what about the year in which you were born? They do think there's more decline over time than younger people do. But younger people have obviously been around for less time, so they haven't had as much chance to see decline. So if you divide how much decline they see by their age, so you get like decline per year, you get the same number. So young people are on track to look like older people when they get older. And uh, politically, uh, it is true that people on the conservative side of the political spectrum uh, are more likely to say that morality is declined. They say it louder. They say there's been more of it. But even on the farthest left of the political spectrum, people also say that it's happened. So it's not just one kind of person or one country on Earth where people are saying this. It cuts across demographic groups. It cuts across the world. One of the things you point out, which is quite remarkable, is that for most people, that decline begins the day they were born. <laughs> and it doesn't go back 100 years. They don't know. They don't know if people were nice to each other 100 years ago, but they do know that they're not as nice to each other now as they were from the day I was born. And it's gotten worse all the way through my life, no matter how long yeah. you've been living. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you ask people like, OK, what are people like today? What were people like when you were 20? What were people like when you were born? People go, it just got worse and worse. And we're like, okay, well, what about 20 years before you were born, 40 years before you were born? People go, oh, they were nicer then, but they were equally nice. So it's just flat, flat, flat. Then I arrive on the scene and things start getting worse. But of course, as you said, people arrive on Earth at different times. And this is really something that suggests that this has to do with a bias of memory. Right. Because if it were the case that like, okay, people think that we're less kind today because I don't know, they watch old TV shows and people sure seem nice on those or like, then we might all go, oh yeah, the 1950s, that was the time or the 1980s or whatever. But no, it really does seem to be tied to people's memory. And so anytime before I was born um, is equally good. And only when I get here do, do things uh, start going to hell in a handbasket. And, and you found that people are really convinced that this is true. Uh, there's no debating here. It's not like, well, I don't really know. You know, I mean, maybe it's a bit of this and a bit of that. Depends where you live. Depends, you know, on many things. People are absolutely positive that things yeah. aren't, that people aren't as nice to each other, aren't as civil today as they were when, back when. Yeah. Even when we pay people to get the right answer. So we we ran a study. We're like, OK, we one way of thinking about how people treat one another over time is we have data on how people act in these lab based economic games. These are games is a strong word for what these are. Basically, you show up at, at a psychology lab or an economics lab and you're given some choices to make where you can be greedy or you can be generous. So you can make more money if you, if you make the greedy choice. We've run this in a bunch of different ways for generations. I haven't done this personally. Other people have done this. And so we now have data going back all the way to 1956 as to how people make these choices. And the authors of this study where they looked at how these cooperation rates changed over time expected to find that people are less likely to go into the lab and choose the generous option today than they were you know, 70 years ago. They're wrong. They are more likely, in fact, they are 10 percentage points more likely to cooperate in the lab. And so we, we thought this is a great test of the hypothesis. Like, let's describe this to our participants. You know, here's what it's like. You show up in the lab. You can choose to be to do the, the generous thing, the greedy thing. You can make more money if you do the greedy thing. And guess what? We know how this has changed over time, and we will pay you extra money if you get it right. So we'll take whatever you're paying you for, for the study. You know, we, we will quadruple it if you get it right. And people still say... I think those rates of cooperation have gone down. And I think that the, our participants estimated they went down by about 10 percentage points. They went up by about 10 percentage points. So even when money is on the line, even when you're very specific about what you're asking for, even when you can check people's answers, people are still saying that people are less good to each other than they used to be. 
And yet you've, I mean, this is hard to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it seems that it's absolutely untrue, that it's completely wrong. And we all believe it. And yet it's entirely untrue. Yeah. So if it if it if it were the case that uh, the, that people's claims were right that you know people are less friendly than we used to be, you should be able to pick up some some trace of it in the data that we have over time. And so and we do have a lot of data collected over decades where people are asked questions like, well, how would you rate the state of morality right now? Uh, were you treated with respect all day yesterday? In the past twelve months, have you looked after someone's pets or plants or mail while they were away? Have you given up your your seat on a bus to somebody? Is it important to be selfish? Can you trust other people? All these questions where if people are really getting worse, we should see these answers go down and down over the decades. But in fact, they're flat. And we have pretty strong evidence that they're flat. And so it really doesn't seem like people's claims here are true. And obviously, that's also against the backdrop of the data I just told you about, where people are more likely to cooperate in the lab than they used to be. And we've also got these big trends where we've got declines in war and genocide and child abuse, which also goes against the idea that you know people are less good than they once were. Although, to be fair to people's claims, that isn't exactly what people mean when we ask them. So when we right. ask them, what do you mean that morality has declined? You know, they say things like, yeah, people don't hold the door for one another anymore. Not, you know, we've got terrorist attacks and we didn't used to, although that is part of what people say. There's no God's eye view of this, right? Like, we don't have the perfect data. It's not like, you know, we've got you know, temperature readings going back hundreds of years. But if this were the case, we should be able to pick it up somewhere. And in fact, everywhere we look, we see no evidence for it. Tell me about Beam, because what this is, as you, you mentioned it already, it's a memory thing. It's it's how mm-hmm. we perceive reality before between as compared to how we remember reality, which are two very different things, as anybody, yeah. if you think back over the course of your life, can, can figure out. Yeah. Yeah. So as to why this happens, we think there's probably a bunch of reasons, but two in particular we think are especially important. So one is that we have a bias towards looking at negative information. This is basically if it bleeds, it leads. Most of what you hear about people you don't know is about them doing bad stuff. If you look at the newspaper, this is what you hear about. And so every day you look out on the world and it kind of seems like people in general are pretty bad. They're beheading one another. They're embezzling money. They're telling lies. But but that's that alone is not enough to perceive to create the perception that things have gotten worse over time. And there's a second bias, uh, this one in memory, where the badness of bad memories fades faster than the goodness of good memories. This is um, a phenomenon that we call the fading affect bias. But basically, it's that when something good happens to you and you remember it a long time later, it still feels pretty good. Not as good as the day it happened, but still pretty good. When something bad happens to you, for most of those bad memories, years later, it doesn't feel as bad. And that's because you rationalize it, you reframe, you distance yourself from it. You find all these ways to take the sting out of the badness. And so the badness goes away faster than the goodness. And if you put these two cognitive biases together, you can produce this illusion where every day you look out on the world and it looks bad, but every day you remember that it didn't actually seem this bad yesterday. But that's because it was just as bad yesterday, but those memories uh, have started to fade uh, and become better. Yeah. And you're you're filing away the bad from one part from one part already. You're filing away the past bad. I guess what's so crucial about this, I mean, knowing this is 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 interesting. What's so crucial about this is that we're constantly being bombarded with attempts to exploit the belief that things are broken, that things were better when. And you mentioned it, that somehow there's a switch you could turn. You could go back in time and beware of those who promise it, because it is, I believe, done on purpose, knowing that this is a very effective way to to con people, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You'll notice a lot of times people say that some kind of social institution is broken or it's rotten, which suggests, and and I think very uh, cleverly suggests, there was a time when it was 
when it worked, when it was fixed. And so really what we need to do is go back to that time when this thing wasn't broken. And really what we mean is those things are bad. Maybe they're better now, but they're not good yet. But if something is broken, it means that we should go back to the way that it was. And so if it's actually not the case, if we are wrong about the way that we remember the past, then whatever we would do to try to fix this thing isn't going to do anything to it. In fact, it might break it and make it worse than it is now. And certainly no one knows how to fix something that isn't broken, right? I mean, that that's the <laughs> yeah. problem, right? Yeah. How do you fix something yeah. that isn't really broken, broken? One of the things about about that that's also interesting is is that if if you if people are susceptible to it, so people are prone to believe that it is broken if they're told so. It fits their worldview, right? Or if someone says, "Well, I have all this data that shows that it isn't worse," people are like, "Ah, but it feels worse," and that's important. <laughs> yeah, I get so many emails and comments from people who are like, "Your study is dumb." Is it like? obviously things are worse now than, than they used to be. Like, how could you possibly have been bamboozled into thinking otherwise? And for some of these people, they uh, haven't read the paper and uh, they're just so convinced. They're, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they have this feeling that I can know what the world is like by looking out my window, which is so seductive that it kind of feels like, well, I don't, I don't see anything that I don't see. I kind of feel like I'm seeing everything. So I must know what things are like. And I certainly know what things used to be like. Some of them also are disagreeing, I think, with our definition of morality. They go like, well, you know, people don't attend church as much as they used to. And right. and so morality is declined. And my response to that is, I know, but that's your definition and, and other people would disagree. Some people think that's a good thing. So that's why it's included. We're only looking at the things where you would agree that it would be bad if this went away. And I would agree if it would be bad if this went away. And any person we could get in the room would also agree. So people saying, I encounter incivility at work. That's a bad thing. And I can show you that that hasn't changed over time. And I can show you that a hundred times over. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, if anything, it feels like there are many things you could point to and say, well, it is better now that I, that I remember if I think about it clearly. Things are better in many ways than when I was young. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. 